wonder if you've ever experienced separation anxiety. You know that feeling when you have to say goodbye to somebody? You know, I used to sob wildly when someone in my family would go on a holiday. And I'm like, they're going on a holiday, but I was still sobbing because it was saying goodbye. And if I was watching a TV show or a movie where a character would die, oh my goodness. My, my brothers used to tease me. So I would run to the bathroom and get tissues and wipe my face because I just, it broke my heart when someone had to say goodbye. I don't know, even at weddings, I even cry when the father has to give the bride away. I'm a mess. And I didn't think much about how I felt about separation anxiety until I had my daughter and it was mirrored back to me because she gets separation anxiety when I have to separate from her. Now, we had kinder orientation this week. Oh, my gosh, she's growing up. But she was hiding behind me, and, and then she hid under the table as well because she was scared of being separated. And I'm like, it's okay, honey. Like, I'm right here. I'm right next door to you. This is the advantage. She's going to come to my school. So I was, like, peeking in the window, um, spying on her. But like when I drop her off to childcare, I have to give her 15 kisses, 15 cuddles, and answer 15 questions. And the question she asks the most is, what time will you be back? Are you coming back for me? And I'm like, of course I'm coming back for you. I'll always come back for you. I will come back and take you home and you'll be with me. And I'll also have a treat because, you know, I spoil her so. Um, and you might think, why are you sharing this story? Because I want to connect it to John chapter 14, the chapter that we're studying today. And Jesus is comforting his disciples because they're anxious. They're anxious because they're about to be separated from the Lord. This is the night before Jesus' arrest. This is the night before he has to leave them. So Jesus is telling them all the things he needs to say before he's leaving. And they're worried and scared because Jesus said, look, I'm going away and where I'm going, you can't come. Jesus is going to give them words of comfort and assurance. And I'm hoping that today you'll be comforted and assured by his words because my message title today is Trust in Troubled Times. And my goal is that the word of God will strengthen you as you go through various trials. Jesus did not say, follow me and you'll have a trouble-free life. I've looked it up. It actually doesn't say that. On the contrary, it does say in John chapter 16, verse 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And during the time that I've been preparing this message, it's it's been quite overwhelming. There's been so many of my friends and family members and people close to me who've gone through the most incredible challenges. You know, even in the past few weeks, we've cried with our friends who've lost family members. We've been praying fervently for friends whose um, family members are in hospital or they've been diagnosed with illness. You know, we're praying in faith for a child who who's sick and needing a miracle. And we're carrying the burden of friends who are facing financial difficulties and injustice. 
you know, our prayer requests, like we don't have them up here, but they're not faceless, nameless people. It's our family. It's our body. And when a part of the body is is suffering, the rest of the body suffers with it. We've been studying from the book of John and we've witnessed wonderful and inspiring miracles. The raising of Lazarus from the dead, the healing of the man born blind. We've seen the feeding of the 5,000, the water turned into wine, and we've heard remarkable conversations between Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and we've encountered the arguments between Jesus and his opponents. And tonight, not tonight, in our chapter today, we're in the intimate setting of the Passover dinner where Jesus is sharing his last meal. It's very solemn and serious because he's just dropped some truth bombs. Number one, one of the tight group of disciples is going to betray Jesus. Number two, Jesus is going away, and where he's going, they can't come. And then three, Peter was told, you're going to disown me before the rooster crows tonight. And it's understandable that their hearts are troubled because there's uncertainty, there's unknown. And when things are unknown, it's scary the expectation they had of Jesus, it's going to be replaced with a troubling reality. Jesus is going to die. And it's in this context that Jesus speaks these words. So I'm going to read from John chapter 14. I do love the NIV. (laughs) So it's from the NIV. Okay, so verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus is giving an instruction. He knows that troubles are coming. And the first response of the heart can be (gasps) fear. But Jesus is saying, don't allow your heart to be troubled. You can have a choice about whether your heart is troubled or not when you go through this trial. Jesus calls us to trust in the Father and to also trust in the Son. Because we as humans can try to put our trust in a lot of different areas. We could put our trust in ourselves. I can do this in our education. I'm intelligent in our finances. I've got money in the bank. In our reputation, well, in some situations, maybe those things could work. But for some, there's there's some troubles in your life that nothing makes a difference. They're completely out of our realm of influence or control. A sudden accident, a sudden illness, a breakdown of a relationship, something we cannot control. Only the God, the maker of heaven and earth, can help us. It's in a relationship with him, and as we stand on his word, that we can have peace in the midst of troubles. The answer is to believe in God, to trust, hold on, cling to God, and not only to believe in God, but believe in Jesus' Son. He and the Father are one. And Jesus is about to leave, but he wants to get down on their level and say, I'm telling you the truth. Even though I'm leaving, I'm coming back. And while I'm away, I've got something important to do. So let's look at verse 2. My father's house has many rooms. 
If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Jesus tells us that God's house has many rooms. It's not limited by size or space. Jesus is giving us an eternal perspective. There's a place beyond this earth, and the place where he is going is beyond our realm. We can be assured that there's life after death because he's going to go there and come back and prove that it's true. Many people interpret this verse uh, to mean heaven, and it very well could be. Um, but it could have a broader interpretation. It could be that Jesus is talking about God's family home, his household, and we've been talking a bit about that. The family of God is the household of God. And through Jesus' death on the cross, he's opening up the way to make room for us in his family through the forgiveness of sins and relationship with the Father. To anyone who's ever felt rejected, left out, nothing special prepared for you, Jesus is reassuring you, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. I'm going to welcome you into your very own room in the Father's family, in his house. Did you know that in Jewish wedding culture, there were two parts to a wedding? There was the betrothal, or it was a bit like the engagement, and that was called the erusin. And that was like the engagement. And then the marriage itself was the niswin. Forgive me for my pronunciation, but I'm trying. And during the betrothal period, the bridegroom would go and prepare a place for his bride to live in. And sometimes these renovations could take quite a while, and they could be delayed. And no one knew the day or hour where the groom would come back but the bride would always be ready. She had to get her oil lamps ready. She had to be ready because any time he could come back and take the bride to, ma- to be married. When he did come back, he would take the bride and they would consummate the marriage. Ephesians 5 speaks of the metaphor of Jesus is the bridegroom and his church is his bride. That's us. So he's coming back to take us to the place he's prepared for us. Isn't that amazing? You know, just like our friend um, Daniel, who's not here, is going to take his bride Marie, and they're going to be living together in a covenant relationship. That is what Jesus wants to do with us. Just like I keep my promise to my child that I will come back and take you, Jesus says, I'm coming back and I'm going to take you home so that we may be together. So when we go through troubled times, we can sometimes wonder, how long must I endure? When will I see the light at the end of the tunnel? Where do I belong? Jesus says, trust me, I'm preparing a place for you. I'm coming back for you. I'm choosing you. Because I don't know if you felt, oh, I wish I was more beautiful, more popular. In God's eyes, that doesn't matter because he doesn't necessarily choose the most beautiful or the most popular. He chooses the ones he adopts into the families of faith. And he chooses the unlikely 
the Mary Magdalene's, the ones who've got seven demons, the ones, the Levi, the tax collector, the criminal on the cross. He chose the Peter of the world, the, the James, the Johns. And look, he, he even chose me <laughs> and you. He chose you and me. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you'd know him and you've seen him. And Thomas, our doubting friend, is not afraid to ask the questions on his mind. How can we follow you? And Jesus says these incredible words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you look at the grammar, he does not use the article a, like our way, our truth, our life. He uses the word the, this particular one. It's the way, the truth, the life. In terms of the way, when I'm driving to work, my navigator will give you th me three options. You know, I could go this way, the toll road, I can go this way, or if the traffic's bad, I can go that way. It all ends up in the same place. But Jesus is saying there's only one way. He is the way to the Father. When Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman in John 4, he said he was the Messiah, the promised king, the anointed one. Jesus said the way to worship is in spirit and in truth. In John 8, Jesus said that he was on the side of truth. There's the father of lies, the devil, and the father of truth, which is God. And Jesus said the truth will set you free. Those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. I heard a wonderful message by uh, Max Jiganathan from the Center of Public Christianity. And he said that we are living in a post-truth society because rather than a postmodern society, people like, oh, truth, yeah, look, what's true for you is true for you, but what's true for me is true for me. And feelings are the most important thing. And the problem with this kind of thinking is that it fails morally. It's self-centered, and it can lead to the degradation of people's value and dignity. There are some people who engage in human trafficking, and I can never understand how anyone could um, could treat another person made in the image of God in that way because these are troubled times and people are calling good evil and evil good. Jesus is saying he's the truth. If you were in a law court and someone was accusing you of something you didn't do, you, the truth would matter. If you were in a hospital and awaiting a treatment plan, you would want the truth. The truth matters. Okay, The life you know, as I was preparing this, it's been an interesting week. <laughs> My little one's been sick. And I was like, all week, I haven't had any time to do this. So I'm like doing this at 10 o'clock at night. I'm like, like this. Um, it's been hard, but it's the truth. <laughs> and at the time, I, I was getting messages on um, on Messenger. One of my friends just found out that his sister passed away. And, and she was 46 years old. And that's not far off my age. And it was sudden and it was unexpected. And I said to him, you know what? 
in the Father's house, there are many rooms. There's, there's room. There's, there's life. There's life. And he was so comforted by that because the proof of life is the resurrection. What comfort can we give if we don't believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? You know, Martha and Mary in, ver- in chapter 11 in John, they were devastated by the death of their brother, Lazarus. But Jesus brought him back to life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Even though he died, he lived. Martha and Mary were so grateful. The peace in their hearts knowing that Jesus is the life. And most people are terrified by death. Paul in his letters to the Philippians in chapter 1, 22, he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be better by far. This single verse probably revolutionized my relationship with the Lord. I was 14 years old when I first read it, and I had been living a very religious Christianity. I'd been brought up um, in, in the Greek tradition, and, you know, I thought I loved the Lord, but I didn't know what it meant to live is Christ and to not be afraid of death. This was revolutionary to my thinking, and it's that then that I started getting serious about following Christ. Dying is not something to be feared in Christ because we can be united with him, which is better by far. How many of us have this perspective on life and death? Because in troubled times we can trust that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, as I was preparing this I just kept on thinking of that concept of suffering. How can we explain the concept of suffering to the world? Because there are many worldviews about suffering. You know, there are some who believe that God is distant and he doesn't care. It's like, oh, he's far away. What has he got to do with the suffering we're going through? Or is it a, like a karma kind of point of view. It's it's our fault that suffering has come upon us because maybe we've done something and the suffering has come upon us. Or maybe it's like, oh, suffering is an illusion. Maybe if we get into a state of nirvana, we can rise above the suffering. Or maybe if we believe that there's no God and there was an atheistic point of view, maybe suffering is meaningless. But deep down in our hearts, we know that that can't be right. This can't be all there is. The biblical response to suffering is that we have a God who is close to us. He took on human form so that he can identify with us in our suffering. In this broken world, it's not someone's fault that there's suffering. Suffering is real, and the suffering causes us to develop a character, a substance that is so precious, it's like gold. Something happens within us and around us when we suffer. And his response is to send his son to us in human form, to come to earth and to experience suffering alongside us. When we walk through dark times, we have the overwhelming assurance that he is walking with us. We are not alone in our suffering. As it says in Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The ultimate act of suffering 
with the cross of Jesus, with which he took on the sin of the world. He has forgiven sin by our faith in him. He has defeated death and given us a hope for the future. The cross is not merely a means of execution. It's the bridge between humanity and God the Father. And on the other side of the cross, there's overwhelming victory. Victory over the power of sin and death. Victory over the dominion of the devil and darkness. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the proof that he's telling the truth. And the truth is, troubled times are not going to last forever. Amen? In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In Romans 8.19, Paul says, Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So I want you to take this. Number one, God walks with us in troubled times. Number two, we need to trust his presence is there with us. And number three, suffering will not last forever and the result will be glorious. Amen? Amen. And this leads me to the part where Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Because if Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, there's no other way to the Father. In this post-truth society, many look at this statement and say, yeah, good for you, Jesus. That's truth for you, but not for me. But if it's not the truth, then everything else he said is a lie. And so it's like, oh, if what he's saying is true, then we need to adjust our belief, our course to his course. Otherwise, we'll be the ones off track and we won't reach the Father. But what about those who don't believe? What if there are other faiths and religions? Oh, this is a big question. You have to take that one to the Lord. But I do know that the Lord is merciful and kind. And in 2 Peter 3, 9, he said, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So that is where we need to go, Okay, Lord, Help me, help me, fill me with your spirit, show me the way. Let me continue with verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus, show us God. You know, Moses asked, can I see you, God? And God said, look, you can't see me face to face. Just go hide in this little cave and I will pass my glory by you. Because no one could be face to face with the Lord and live. But by the kindness and grace of God, he sent his son Jesus to show his face. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, and he is human and he is divine. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe? that I am in the Father and that the Father's in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who's doing his work. Philip, Philip, don't you get it? You've been having front row seats to all that I've come to do and say. Don't you realize when you see me, Jesus, you see the Father? 
And there's so much that can be said about the character of Father God. So much to say about being children of God. I won't open that up. Last week, Yvonne shared a wonderful message about God the Father, and we celebrated all the fathers around us. And if you want more on that, grab the podcast or check it out on Facebook to catch up because it is really wonderful. Verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Even greater things. Because when Jesus was on earth, he only had a certain scope. He was one man in a humanity, a sea of humanity. But he said, I'm going to leave so that you can do greater things. And another aspect of trusting in troubled times is that privilege of prayer. We can lean into it. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to pray. Because the Bible says, don't be anxious or worried about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Pray continually. Pray without ceasing. Cast your cares. Throw your anxieties. Exchange your burdens with him, for he loves you. He loves you. Father God loves you. And he wants you to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. Hallelujah. John Stott says, prayer is the very way God himself has chosen for us to express our conscious need of him and our humble dependence on him. We need God. We must depend on God. Where does our help come from? We can look up to the hills. Does our help come from the hills? No, it comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. When we realize we can't change a situation or control a situation by our own efforts, we need to pray. Do you pray? Do you pray? Do you pray by yourself with a friend in a prayer meeting? Do you pray with your family? Pray. It's amazing how much lighter you can feel once you've prayed. It's amazing when we connect with God, our Father, we behold him, we entwine ourselves with his heart. Our desires become his desires. And prayer is not a shopping list. It is not a Christmas wish list. It is not a transaction. It is a relationship. And the promise that Jesus gives is here with the condition The prayers are to be prayed in Jesus' name. This means we're not just getting a blank check. We are praying as Jesus would pray. We are praying according to the will of the Father. And if you're not sure what the will of the Father is, open up your Bible, which I left on my chair. Open up your Bible and find out what the will of the Father is. And when we pray, we consider the sovereignty of God. He is the King of of the kingdom. So he's in charge. And we also trust in his timing because his timing and our timing, they don't always line up. But God knows what's best because he knows the end from the beginning. So when we go through troubled times, we can trust God because we can come to him in prayer and know he hears us and answers us. 
which leads me to verse 15. Once again, this is a let's I wish I could share four messages because this chapter has got four messages worth of teaching in it. But I won't do that to you guys. <laughs> Maybe another time. Verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, you'll keep my commands if you love me. And if, yeah, because it's part of the relationship. If I love you, Jesus, then I'll be faithful to you. And I'll be faithful to you because I love you. Just as we are faithful in a marriage um, covenant, we love each other so we remain faithful and we stay committed to keeping those commands. Keeping those commands, being holy, imitators of the Lord, is because of that love relationship. The two greatest commandments are to love the Lord God with all our hearts, all our souls and our minds and our strength, and to love one another. Obedience is an act of love and the way we share our love. It's not just a feeling, it's words and deeds. Verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Now, the Greek word for advocate in this verse is parakletos. In other translations of the Bible, it's, it's translated as helper, comforter, friend. You can see they couldn't nail down just one word to translate that word parakletos because parakletos means it's one who comes alongside. Think of that suffix para. You hear it in words like paramedic or paralegal, the people who come alongside you to help. That's the Holy Spirit. He is your helper. The Holy Spirit is the helper and presence of God. He is the spirit of truth that comes to live inside us. He empowers us, strengthens us, leads us into truth and wisdom. He convicts us of sin and shines the word of God in our hearts. And when Jesus returns to the Father, he will send the gift of the Holy Spirit down to us. Stay tuned because more is coming on that in chapter 14, 15, and 16. So keep coming back, guys, okay? <laughs> because when we go through troubled times, we can trust God gives us an advocate to come alongside us. Continuing on to verse 17. The world cannot accept him the Holy Spirit, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you'll see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. You know, the disciples were so afraid of being alone. We're so afraid of being alone. But in God's kindness, he's assuring us that we're not alone. We will not be left as orphans without a mother or father, but with the Spirit of God inside us, we become children of God. Ephesians 1.14 says, The Spirit inside us is a seal of our inheritance, of our belonging to God. When I think of those words, I am in my Father, you are in me and I am in you. It made me think of those little Russian babushka dolls. 
You know the ones how there's like a little one and then a medium-sized one and then a bigger one? We got There we go. got a little picture up there. And it just made me realize, okay, I am in Christ. Christ is in the Father. And all together we are united as one. There's a sense of intimacy. We are connected. Our thoughts, actions, and words become intertwined, and the Spirit binds us together. And when the Spirit lives inside us, we carry that Christ inside us, that anointing. We are little Christians, little Christs. You know, one of the reasons we named our daughter Christina is because we wanted her to carry Christ with her all the days of her life, follower of Christ. Let me conclude by saying this. At the end of the day, I can tell um, my daughter I won't ever leave her, but I don't know what this life will bring. I am an earthly parent in a broken world, but we have a heavenly father who's eternal. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows that we fear the separation. He knows we fear the unknown and being out of control, but his word is our light. His word is the rock on which we stand. In this world, we will have troubles and there will be storms. But when we build our lives on the rock of his word, we'll remain even though the wind and the waves crash against us. Jesus is with us. And I've got another image that um, I took a photo of because one afternoon while I was preparing this message, I looked up into the sky and I saw dark gray storm clouds. There was a thunderstorm on the horizon. And by the grace of God, I saw the spire with the cross pointing to, uh, it was shining in a ray of light. And I felt it was a message from God to us. It's a reminder that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the light of the world, and he calls us to trust him. In this world, we will have trouble, but take heart. He's overcome the world. Now, if I could ask the musicians to come forward. So the main message I want you to to come away with today is to understand Jesus has Prepared a place for you. Don't let your heart be troubled. The Lord is the way, the truth, and the life. The Lord hears and answers our prayers. He gives us his spirit to live inside of us. And the Lord says we're not alone. And I want to invite you to pray, to bring your life your troubles, your burdens to the Lord. We can trust in the Lord in troubled times. You know, I was reading about um, King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. He had an enormous army coming to oppose him, and he didn't know what to do. He called for a nationwide seeking of the Lord. He said, come and pray to the Lord together. Let's seek the Lord. And, you know, he said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And you might be in a troubled time right now. And you say, I don't know what to do, Lord, but I invite you to put your eyes on the Lord. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. 
ask the Lord to fill you with his spirit. His spirit will help you, advocate for you, and strengthen you.